there's usually a point at which historical events cease to be controversial, at least emotionally. The American Revolution, for instance, is at that point, I think. At the time, a sizable portion of the population wanted to remain British subjects, and there were significant consequences for voicing that opinion publicly. Tar and feathering, for instance. Today, there are uh, still some people who will, who will argue that the, the founders didn't have sufficient cause to rebel, but they don't really get fired up about it and denounce people who disagree. And nobody's going to get banished from polite society for saying uh, America you know, would have been better off continuing its colonial status for uh, another century or so. Uh, it might get you a sideways look or two, but uh, no, one's, no one's ready to throw down over it. It's an intellectual question and not an emotional one. And it's the same thing if you're talking about uh, what caused the Roman civil wars and the end of the Republic, like the great hardcore history series. Uh, was it overly rapid territorial expansion or a culture of naked ambition uh, or maybe the senatorial class's refusal to allow the equestrians a seat at the table. It's, it's, you know, it's all really interesting stuff, but aside from maybe a few academics with, with reputations to defend, n- nobody's going to get angry about it. It's just events that occurred and, and can be learned from and viewed in different ways. Now, the United States Civil War seems to have yet to reach that point. People still get really worked up about it, as evidenced by the, the recent arguments over Confederate statues. And within the context of the Civil War, John Brown may be the single most controversial figure. In fact, he very well may be the single most controversial figure in American history, period. And now, I reached that conclusion, in part, when, while doing research for this show, I came across... A, a fairly recent Washington Post article uh, about John Brown's execution. Now, the article painted a, a pretty flattering picture of, uh, of John Brown in the whole. You know, the Potawatomi massacre was, was simply described as uh, Brown having been accused of killing five men in Kansas, which, of course, is true as far as it goes, but it, it leaves out that he, he probably killed more than five. And... Um, and there's no doubt about his involvement. But more to the point, I was fascinated with how incredibly heated, um, or in some cases uh, unhinged, the comments at the end of the article were. Uh, according to the, uh, the WAPO readers, Brown was, was both murdering scum and one of the greatest Americans. Now, one reader cited the author's favorable treatment of Brown as uh, irrefutable proof that she would endorse the killing of her political enemies today, which is quite the rhetorical stretch. And another claimed that John Brown, uh, foreshadowing Rambo, I guess, uh, killed hundreds of Marines, perhaps single-handedly, before finally losing out due to his, his gentle treatment of his prisoners. Now, you know, that one's just not true. And, of course, there was the commenter who noted the irony that the, the first death caused by the Harper's Ferry raid was a free black man. Now, uh, numerous historians have made that same observation, but in this case, the observer was denounced as a poorly educated racist ignoramus. And last but not least, and, and I promise this, this will be it, 
One comment noted that Brown's raid led to heightened tempers and increased distrust of Northerners in the South, which in turn made the war more likely, if not inevitable. Now, this comment uh, fairly well conforms to pretty much every Civil War historian uh, that I've read anyway. And, and so naturally, it can only have been made by an uneducated moron with no comprehension of history. So the point of all this is, is that, uh, well, first, reading the comments at the bottom of online articles is almost always a waste of time and a generally bad idea. But I'm sure that you're all well aware of that. Now, but the point is that after uh, 150 years after John Brown's death, he is still incredibly divisive. And in Brown's case, reasonable minds truly can legitimately differ. Uh, Because one person can say that John Brown was a bloodthirsty terrorist and a horse thief. And another can say that he was a courageous idealist and eventually a martyr. And both positions are entirely defensible. And that's an important point. Uh, for our purposes, because the same thing was true in 1859 and 1860. Southerner Robert Hunter complained that in the North, Brown, quote, seemed to have been considered more as a martyr perishing in a great and holy cause than a criminal seeking to excite a servile war, whose victims were to be women and children, end quote. And that perception was hugely important. Prior to the war, abolitionism was not... Uh, a popular movement in the North. It it was the province of a few wealthy intellectuals and Quakers. Uh, Resistance to the spread of slavery garnered more support, but but that was couched more in economic than uh, in moral or religious terms. Now, Lincoln promised that he would not interfere with slavery in the South, but Southerners quite simply did not believe him. And that distrust led to secession. And secession, of course, led to the war. Gavrilo Princip, the um, Serbian assassin who killed Archduke Franz Ferdinand, which started World War I, uh, has often been described as lighting the match that ignited the counter peg that Europe was, uh, was sitting on prior to the war. He started the chain reaction that changed the world. Now, for the American Civil War, John Brown holds a very similar position to Princip. But Princip doesn't seem to stir emotions the way that Brown does. Maybe that's just because I'm not Serbian or Austrian, but uh, interestingly, writing 50 years before World War I, Robert Hunter used the same metaphor that is so often applied to Princip when he wrote of the topic of today's show, John Brown's Raid on Harper's Ferry. Quote, To expect that the attempt to cast a lighted match into a powder magazine would fail more than once would be chimerical indeed. Hello and thanks for listening to Portraits of Blue and Gray. This is part two of our portrait of John Brown. Uh, Or maybe I should say part 2A. I initially intended to finish off the Brown series in two episodes but I decided to split it up because it ended up being longer than than planned. So the good news is that I I recorded it all at once. Uh, I'm releasing 2A now, and then I'll be editing 2B and hopefully have it uh, released in uh, a week or two. For the conclusion of the John Brown series, we'll be taking a fairly close look at the Harper's Ferry Raid and its aftermath. 
which happens to be a topic uh, that's close to my heart since I grew up only a few uh, minutes down the road from Harper's Ferry. I am pretty sure that I, I made this suggestion uh, previously, but but if you're ever in the area, I recommend checking out Harper's Ferry. Aside from the historical angle, which is uh, really cool, it's a neat little town with a unique geography and uh, definitely worth a visit um, if you can find a place to park. So after Brown, we're going to get back into the war itself as we start what I anticipate will be at least a three-parter on the figure who has has drawn by far the most listener requests that I have received, and that is William Tecumseh Sherman. And when I say by far, it's not even close, though in all fairness, I did hit Lee, Grant, and uh, Jackson early on, so that eliminated some of the uh, the stiffest composition. I've managed to get my hands on a plethora of good sources on Sherman and am uh, already well into the research. And uh, yes, El Wapo, I do know what a plethora is. If anybody else has any suggestions for any other subjects, I'd love to hear them. I have an ever-expanding list, but I am always open to new ideas. Or um, votes for subjects already on the list uh, might move them up. So you can reach the show at blueandgraypodcast at gmail.com, gray with an E. And as I always say, I truly do enjoy getting listener emails, and I have yet to receive any hate mail, though I have had several listeners disagree with some of my takes, especially my apparently too generous estimation of George McClellan. Uh, hopefully there will be listeners who think I'm being uh, both too hard and too easy on John Brown, and I am sure that listeners in the South will have uh, something interesting to say about uh, Mr. Sherman. And I think that's it for the opening. As always, thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. In August 1857, following his whirlwind fundraising tour through the North generally and New England uh, particularly, uh, John Brown traveled to the abolitionist stronghold of Tabor, Iowa, to meet with an English mercenary he had hired by the name of Hugh Forbes. Forbes had an impressive resume, including fighting with uh, Garibaldi in Italy, and his job was supposed to be to train Brown's recruits and to help with overall strategy uh, for the militant abolitionist group that Brown was organizing. Forbes presented himself as an idealistic fellow traveler. Sure, he fought for money, but it was the movement that was really important. But as things would turn out, in hiring Forbes, Brown had made a big mistake. For starters, the two men just did not get along and couldn't agree on much of anything, let alone strategy. Now, Forbes wanted to headquarter the group at a discreet base in southern Pennsylvania, just north of the Mason-Dixon line. And from there, they would conduct covert raids into Maryland and Virginia at first, gradually working their way south. The raids would involve essentially uh, abducting slaves and bringing them north to the headquarters immediately um, for a gradual travel to Canada uh, via the Underground Railroad. Now, Forbes's plan had some problems, uh, not the least of which is that the operation would be drawn out uh, over an extended period, all the while vulnerable to an attack on the base. But more importantly, um, John Brown, well, he already had a plan. 
He wanted to use an attack on the Federal Armory at Harper's Ferry as a springboard for a large-scale slave insurrection. It was a lightning strike to be followed by a chain reaction. And Brown was in charge, so the Harper's Ferry plan was going to be the plan. But Forbes wasn't happy about it. Now, the other big conflict between the two was, as conflicts so often are, about money. John Brown took a trip to Kansas that fall um, to raise some volunteers for his team. He wanted men with some fighting experience, and in 1857, Kansas was a great place to look. Not to mention John Brown's reputation among the Kansas Free Soilers was a substantial recruiting asset. And he was able to recruit seven men who had fought in Kansas, including 27-year-old Yale grad John Cook, along with Richard Richardson, an escaped slave from Missouri who was eager to join the team. The men were all in their 20s, excluding one teenager, and Brown, who, uh, closing in on 60 years old, was by far the oldest and the clear leader of the group. Brown and the recruits traveled back to Iowa to meet up with Forbes and to spend the winter in training. And John Brown's conflict with Hugh Forbes quickly came to a head. Specifically, Brown had, uh, had raised a respectable sum from his uh, supporters during his fundraising tour. And Forbes had already spent a lot of it. He was drawing a salary, and he was liberally interpreting what counted as job expenses. Uh, Forbes's lavish spending left Brown and his crew with basically no money. And because Brown could, could no longer pay him a salary, Forbes was no longer willing to train the man, which, uh, of course, was what he had been hired uh, to do to start with. You know, Forbes was a mercenary, after all. Now, if either man had cause to be angry over the transaction, it was John Brown. He had made the mistake of trusting his hired mercenary with the group's money, and Forbes had more or less fleeced him. But interestingly, it was Forbes who was left bitter by the dispute. Maybe there were some harsh words exchanged, or or maybe Forbes was just upset that he was all the way out in Iowa, and there was no more money, but Forbes began sending letters to prominent abolitionists, bad-mouthing John Brown and revealing, or trying to reveal, that Brown's plans were much more militant and radical than what he had let on. Notably, Senators Charles Sumner and William Seward both received letters from Forbes. Fortunately, most of the recipients concluded that Hugh Forbes was mentally unwell, with Seward describing him as a man of an unsound mind or a very much disturbed mind. And so they didn't take the letters seriously. Now, just strategically, it it seems that if Forbes was trying to to expose Brown, which he obviously was, uh, the smarter play would have been to send the letters to, to Southern senators or conservative Democrats who would have been much more likely to take the matter seriously and much less likely to be sympathetic to John Brown. But that's not how he played it. So the letters were more or less brushed off. Even so, word of the Forbes letters got back to the Secret Six, which was the the group of rich abolitionists who were uh, John Brown's primary source of funding and connections. And they started to get nervous Now, we'll talk about this group a little bit more later, but the important thing to know now is that 
These were very prominent, wealthy, politically connected men, and they did not want their names attached to Brown's activities. Now, John Brown was wise enough to keep their identities secret uh, up until the very end, but they were still getting nervous, and they wanted him to slow things down until the dispute with Forbes uh, blew over. A combination of the unwanted publicity from Hugh Forbes and some renewed heat from federal marshals uh, were still hung up on Potawatomi, led Brown to leave Kansas in February 1858 under the alias Nelson Hawkins, and he traveled to Rochester, New York, where he hid out in the home of Frederick Douglass uh, for about three weeks. This is the period during which Brown, or Hawkins, I suppose, grew the long beard that he's usually pictured with. Now, Frederick Douglass liked Brown, and, and he even admired him, referring to John Brown as a, a brave and glorious man. But he resisted uh, Brown's repeated efforts to recruit him for the Harper's Ferry operation. Douglass was, uh, of course, sympathetic to the cause that Brown was fighting for. He just didn't think that the attack on Harper's Ferry had any chance of success. And he expressed to Brown that in all odds, uh, Brown would not come out of the, uh, the venture alive. But, of course, John Brown would not be dissuaded. While at uh, Douglas's home, Brown drafted one of the documents that provides some of the best insight into his ideology, the uh, Provisional Constitution, which was uh, supposed to govern the eventual settlement of emancipated slaves that Brown hoped to found in the uh, Appalachian Mountains as a result of his raid. His constitution was exceptionally idealistic uh, by the standards of the day. He emphasized that equal rights under the law uh, apply to all human beings, male and female, of any race. And he juxtaposed uh, this principle against the United States Supreme Court's Dred Scott opinion. A, uh, quote, a recent decision of the Supreme Court declaring Negroes to have no rights which the white man is bound to respect, end quote. So the high-minded... Egalitarianism was, was front and center, but Brown's constitution went further than just equal rights, and it would ultimately be cited at his trial and by early 20th century historians as evidence that Brown wasn't playing with a full deck. Historian Hermann von Holst described it as a, quote, piece of insanity in the literal sense of the word a confused medley of absurd because absolutely inapplicable forms, end quote. Okay, so what was so bad about it, right? Uh, well, for, you know, all of its idealism, Brown's constitution ventured into territory which, if implemented, would have made for a sort of authoritarian Puritan theocracy. He had in mind to ban, quote, Profane swearing, filthy conversation, indecent behavior or indecent exposure of the person, or intoxication or quarreling, unlawful intercourse of the sexes, end quote. So in Brown's country, there would be no cussing or drinking or fighting or fornicating. And, and divorce was completely out of the question in all but the most extreme situations. The government would establish and run a national church and public schools, which would be focused on religious instruction, first and foremost. And uh, this last one's great. All mentally sound citizens were, quote, encouraged to carry arms openly, whether male or female, end quote. 
So First Amendment rights were um, pretty much out the window, but Second Amendment rights were, uh, you know, pretty much mandatory. So with Hugh Forbes having squandered the funds uh, raised during the previous fundraising tour, Brown used his time back in the Northeast as an opportunity for more networking and money collecting. The reputation that he had earned uh, in Kansas had won him uh, meeting with prominent wealthy abolitionists in Boston, New York City, and New Haven, Connecticut. And to get the potential patrons to open their wallets, Brown began revealing some very limited details about what he was planning. Though he noticeably omitted any reference to Harper's Ferry itself, or to the grand designs for a slave insurrection. Now, most of the abolitionists were pretty impressed with Brown, and they were willing to offer their support, but they saw the operation as doomed for failure. To one such critique, Brown reportedly responded, If God be for us, who can be against us? And he expressed his confidence that he would effect a mighty conquest though he admitted that the conquest might be like the last victory of Samson. But if the New England donors saw Brown as a high-minded, though perhaps foolhardy, crusader in the Puritan mold of Oliver Cromwell, Brown was not overly impressed with the socialites. He was, of course, polite to the men, but in his private correspondence, he pronounced that the New Englanders, quote, from their abodes of safety in the North, spoke so bravely on behalf of the oppressed colored people of the slave states, but took good care to keep their precious bodies north of the Potomac. End quote. Now, Brown understood and uh, appreciated the aristocratic impulse to avoid getting one's hands dirty, and uh, he respected the patrons' wishes to remain behind the scenes but he did not find it a particularly uh, admirable quality. Even so, he was able to raise a few more thousand dollars, which, of course, went quite a bit further in the 1850s. Brown's most committed supporters were the men who came to be known as the Secret Six, a group of wealthy, stridently abolitionist New England intellectuals. Uh, They provided much of Brown's financial backing and had the connections to arrange for speaking appearances and private meetings with other abolitionists with, uh, with the means to make substantial donations to the cause. The Secret Six, Franklin Sanborn, Thomas Higginson, Theodore Parker, George Luther Stearns, Samuel Howe, and Garrett Smith, also did not balk when John Brown suggested that his strategy might include political violence, and incitement of slave revolts. As we mentioned in Part 1, most abolitionists were committed to nonviolence, though the Fugitive Slave Act changed some of their minds, including the Secret Six, and to an extent, Frederick Douglass. So their connections and resources were also instrumental in securing another asset that was crucial to John Brown's plan, weapons. You see, he didn't just need guns for the 20 or so members of his raiding team. For his plan to work, he needed to be able to arm the slaves he was counting on fighting at his side after being liberated. Now, securing the weapons from the Harper's Ferry Armory was certainly part of the plan, but he also needed to have sufficient weapons on hand going in. 
and he needed to acquire them without drawing too much attention to himself. The Secret Six were able to secure for Brown 200 Sharps rifles, a state-of-the-art weapon at the time, uh, courtesy of the Massachusetts-Kansas Committee. But Brown was concerned that many of his potential volunteers, being newly liberated slaves, would have no experience with firearms. And there was a good chance there wouldn't be time for on-the-fly training. So he and his backers also arranged for the manufacture of some uh, not-so-state-of-the-art weapons. 1,000 pikes, ordered from a Collinsville, Connecticut blacksmith of the abolitionist persuasion. The pikes were essentially razor-sharp bowie knives, securely strapped to long, strong wooden poles. Pikes had proven to be a highly effective weapon in the hands of 15th century Swiss mercenaries, and more importantly, they could be used effectively without much training. Now, as an aside, early in the Civil War, Stonewall Jackson complained to Richmond that he didn't have sufficient ammunition to supply his men, and he was told to rely on the bayonet until the supply problems could be uh, ironed out. In response, Jackson requisitioned thousands of pikes to arm the rebel soldiers. After all, if you don't have any ammunition, pikes do have a longer range than a bayoneted rifle. His request, made in all earnestness, was approved, but ended up being unnecessary, and so the pikes were never deployed in combat. John Brown's networking included trips to Detroit and Chicago, where he connected with abolitionist detective Alan Pinkerton, uh, before a trip to Canada to meet with black abolitionist leaders, uh, including Harriet Tubman. Now, Tubman was an escaped slave that became one of the most prominent conductors on the Underground Railroad, and she and Brown were kindred spirits. Brown took to referring to Tubman as the general, and he especially appreciated stories of her carrying a pistol when moving escaped slaves and threatening to shoot any who got scared and tried to return to slavery. Harriet Tubman reportedly assisted more than 300 escaped slaves in traveling to Canada, and so she was one to follow up words with action, which was a quality with which John Brown could relate. So from May 8th through May 10th, John Brown participated in what was called the, the Chatham Convention. Chatham was a population center for Canadian free blacks and many escaped slaves from the U.S. And it was one of the ultimate destinations of the Underground Railroad. So under the pretense of forming a Masonic Lodge um, for blacks, Brown joined about 50 mostly black abolitionists in making preparations for the uh, government of the Appalachian freed slave colony that he, he was contemplating. Part of the process included a debate over uh, the provisional constitution that John Brown had drafted. Now, the big point of contention was, was whether the goal of the raid and the subsequent colony should be the overthrow of the United States government. Brown was strongly against naked insurrection, and he argued that the U.S. system was good, but had just become corrupted by slavery. If the corruption could be um, rooted out, the fundamentals were strong. And ultimately, he was able to win over the convention to his side, and that was adopted as the official position. The Chatham Convention also offered strong moral support for Brown's raid, but could not provide much in the way of financial support. 
And uh, even more disappointing to Brown, he was not able to recruit many volunteers. Only one man, Osborne Anderson, a freeborn man from Pennsylvania, was willing to commit to the raid. Anderson ended up being one of the uh, survivors of the Harper's Ferry raid, and he would serve in the Union Army a few years later in the Civil War. So soon after Chatham, Brown was surprised by a letter from uh, New England supporters who were still stirred up uh, over the Hugh Forbes fiasco. The Massachusetts-Kansas Committee, uh, which you remember uh, had come through with the 200 Sharps rifles that uh, Brown had already taken possession of and had tucked away in a secure location, uh, the committee informed Brown that the rifles had been provided for action in Kansas only which was basically true. And now that they had reason to believe that Brown was planning to use them elsewhere, uh, they wanted the guns back. Uh, Whichever committee member penned the letter obviously didn't know John Brown very well because that simply was not going to happen. Now, Brown agreed to meet with uh, a couple secret six guys to try to smooth things over. Uh, Frank Sanborn was, uh, was getting cold feet. He thought Brown had been exposed and was headed for disaster. To go on in the face of this is madness, he exclaimed. Now, Brown was able to calm things down by uh, agreeing to return to Kansas for a while until the heat died down and to delay any major action for uh, one year minimum. In return, he got to keep the rifles, which he wasn't going to give up anyway. But he also got $500 cash immediately, along with a promise of $2,000 more for his uh, vague plans after the one-year delay. As we mentioned earlier, the money men didn't want to know the specifics, but they did want some sort of explanation as to what exactly he was asking them to fund. Brown's response was that he was, he was working on something um, similar to the Underground Railroad, quote, but on a somewhat extended scale with an identical object. So honoring his commitment, Brown returned to Kansas in late June of 1858 under a new alias, Shubal Morgan. He also met with the, uh, the recruits that he had left out west, and he explained the delay. The group talked it over, and they decided that they were going to split up for the year, and they would all independently work to save money for the now-delayed raid. Several of the members thought better of their involvement during the year off, and and they never rejoined the team. One man, though, uh, John Cook, received a supremely important assignment. Cook was deployed to Harper's Ferry to ostensibly work as a schoolteacher at a local school, but actually to conduct reconnaissance. Throughout 1858 and 1859, most northern politicians made an effort to assure southerners that they had absolutely no cause for concern. Sure, they, there were some radical abolitionists speaking out, but they did not represent the majority. The new Republican Party, which was by far more anti-slavery than the Democrats, uh, after all, opposition to the spread of slavery was one of the biggest factors in the party's formation, uh, the Republicans made a point of repeatedly emphasizing that they had no intention of interfering with slavery in the southern states. Abraham Lincoln, uh, making a name for himself in the famous Lincoln-Douglas debates uh, during his unsuccessful run for the Illinois Senate seat held by Stephen Douglas, said, quote, I believe there is no right and ought to be no inclination 
in the people of the free states to enter into the slave states and interfere with the question of slavery at all. End quote. And uh, in response to Douglas's suggestions that uh, Lincoln favored radical action in the South, the future president responded, quote, There is no danger of our going over there and making a war upon them. Let it alone, and it will go down of itself. What I would most desire would be the separation of the black and white races, end quote. And here Lincoln is hitting on the Republican platform position that uh, as the nation's economy continued to modernize through industrialization, the inefficiencies of slavery as a labor source would kill the institution naturally. And his personal position, which I do not believe was officially adopted by the Republicans, um, that the government should support colonization of freed slaves and freeborn blacks in Africa or the Caribbean. Lincoln even went so far as to propose a constitutional amendment that would have, in exchange for halting slavery in new territories, expressly forbidden the federal government from ever interfering with slavery in states in which it already existed. So Lincoln, at least publicly, was decidedly not an abolitionist. And uh, neither were the vast majority of northern politicians. Some people have argued that Lincoln secretly favored abolition, but presented himself as being more moderate to enhance his electability. And while that's certainly possible, it is pretty much just speculation. And there's not a whole lot of evidence on either side of the argument. So the question then becomes, if Lincoln and most Republicans repeatedly avowed that they would not interfere with slavery, why did the South feel compelled to secede when Lincoln was elected just two years later? Well, there's no quick and easy single reason. Superficially, you can say it's because threats of secession had uh, worked on the weak-willed President Buchanan. Uh, For instance, a a New Orleans newspaper reported how in November 1857, uh, Southern politicians were able to browbeat Buchanan into supporting the pro-slavery Lecompton Constitution in Kansas. The paper wrote, quote, The president was informed that the states of Alabama, Mississippi, and South Carolina, and perhaps others, would hold conventions and secede from the Union if the Lecompton Constitution should not be accepted by Congress. The reason was that these states, supposing the South had been cheated out of Kansas, were, whether right or wrong, determined to revolt. The president believed this. End quote. Buchanan was afraid to take decisive action on uh, anything controversial. His successor did not share that failing. Historian Alan Nevins writes of Buchanan's weakness with regard to Kansas, and Nevins is adopting a position that was uh, put forward by Senator Stephen Douglas just prior to the war. Nevins wrote, quote, Had that threat been met in the right Jacksonian spirit, had the bluff been called, for the four states were unprepared for secession and war, the leaders of the movement would have been utterly discredited. Their conspiracy would have collapsed, and they would have been so routed and humiliated in 1857 that the Democratic Party schism in 1860 might never have taken place, and secession in 1861 would have been impossible. End quote. 
that the Southern states actually went through with the threat was partly because Southerners, correctly, thought the balance of power in the federal government was shifting. The North had been more successful in moving anti-slavery people into the new territories, uh, with Minnesota and Oregon joining Kansas as new free states in 1858 and 1859. And it was inevitable that, as more free states were admitted, the South would be increasingly outnumbered in the Senate. And that could potentially impact more than just slavery. As the industrialized North became uh, more politically powerful, federal policy shifted uh, more toward protectionism, designed to aid manufacturers, uh, most of which were in the North. But the same policies thought to be, to be good for Northern industry were bad for Southern agriculture. The South's economy relied heavily on foreign exports and on imports from Europe. And tariffs on either side disproportionately hurt the South by raising the prices Southerners had to pay for imported goods and by making it harder for Southern exports to compete in European markets. So the protectionism favored by Republicans was seen as forcing the poorer South to subsidize the richer North's uh, growing industrial economy. Uh, After the war, when Republicans held nearly all power in Washington, protectionist policies probably did just that. One of the criticisms of Lincoln and the Republican politicians who held post-bellum power uh, that you often hear, especially from uh, libertarian historians, is that they were too cozy with the industrialists, crony capitalism. I'm not offering an opinion on that view one way or the other, because I I don't really know enough about the issue, but uh, I thought it was worth mentioning. But anyway, while trade policy was important, the biggest issue was slavery itself. Lincoln and the Republicans stressed that they would not abolish slavery in the South, but Southerners just didn't believe them. With Lincoln, uh, part of that was because Stephen Douglas had successfully painted Lincoln as a black Republican, an abolitionist in their debates. And old Honest Abe just couldn't seem to shake that label, no matter how many constitutional amendments protecting slavery he supported. Even more, Lincoln's famous house-divided speech during the debates, uh, which were followed closely throughout the country, uh, created a stir in the South. Lincoln said, quote, I believe this government cannot endure permanently half slave and half free. It will become all one thing or all the other. Either the opponents of slavery will arrest the further spread of it and place it where the public mind shall rest in the belief that it is in the course of absolute extinction or its advocates will push it forward till it shall become alike lawful in all the states, old as well as new, north as well as south. End quote. So Southerners viewed Lincoln's statement as a call for conflict. After the war, a prominent Southern writer, uh, Brigadier General Clement Evans, said of the house-divided metaphor, quote, But the wildest fire-eaters had not ventured the suggestion of forcing slavery northward on any states. These sententious statements of Mr. Lincoln sounded in their ears like the blasts of the bugle, sounding in advance on all of the Southern states. Mr. Douglas charged that utterances of this character made Mr. Lincoln, and here uh, Evans is quoting Stephen Douglas, quote, an enemy of the Union and an advocate of an internecine conflict in which the free states and the slave states would wrestle in deadly encounter, end quote. 
differences over trade policy and slavery had existed for um, basically all of American history, though. So what made these things different in 1860? Well, there was also a perception that Northerners wanted to stir up slave uprisings. And that was absolutely horrifying to Southerners. Now, no Northern politician in his right mind would come out directly in support of insurrections. But abolitionists were becoming more and more radical. And the South was convinced that an abolitionist movement had more support than Northerners let on. In their hearts, most Northerners approved of newly aggressive tactics of the abolitionists, or so many Southerners believed. This view was spurred on by an 1859 political pamphlet written by Hinton Helper, a former resident of North Carolina, uh, titled The Impending Crisis, a Manifesto. Now, in this manifesto, Helper called for a a boycott on all slave-owning merchants or professionals, and he argued that slave owners should be automatically disqualified from holding any public office, and he even sought to prescribe religious communion with supporters of slavery. Uh, General Evans, who we quoted earlier, uh, wrote of the pamphlet, This incendiary work of a malicious enthusiast was reduced into convenient form, printed, and circulated as a campaign document by the hundred thousand at a time when the slavery struggle had actually ceased in Kansas, and the South was presenting no scheme of slavery extension. End quote. The pamphlet was also endorsed by some um, Republican congressmen, uh, which led Southerners to conclude that uh, they meant to put its recommendations into effect. But probably more than any other man or single event, John Brown and his 1859 raid on Harper's Ferry fueled the ever-increasing mistrust of Yankees building in the South. In the summer and fall of 1858, John Brown was laying low in Kansas at the urging of his secret six supporters. But he was starting to get a little antsy. He wasn't the kind of man who liked to, to sit still for too long. He attempted to form an organized militia as an uh, adjunct to the um, Underground Railroad, basically a, a network that would provide armed protection to runaway slaves. And... Um, Underground Railroad engineers as well. But he wasn't able to, to get the idea off the ground. And then in the fall, it looked like things might actually heat back up between the free state settlers and the border ruffians. Uh, most of the violence had subsided, but uh, of course, tensions stayed high until a, a fight between the two sides resulted in five dead free staters and uh, demands for reprisal. So, free soil leader James Montgomery formed an armed militia. Uh, of about 450 men to attack the pro-slave settlement of Paris, Kansas. John Brown initially resisted the efforts of, of Free Soil leaders to uh, recruit him back into the fighting, saying he was, quote, not here to seek nor to secure revenge, end quote. Nonetheless, he decided that he would um, offer to help Montgomery to lead the raid. But interestingly, Montgomery responded, uh, thanks but no thanks. Uh, he would later explain that he turned down Brown's assistance because uh, he thought that John Brown uh, was going to go overboard with the violence. Uh, either way, the raid uh, did go forward, and soon after, federal cavalry was on the way to once again try to get things settled down in Kansas. 
But with fighting again underway, John Brown, who you will remember had agreed to lay low for a year until the Hugh Forbes affair had shaken out, uh, Brown couldn't resist the temptation to get back in the fray. On December 20th, he formed and led 20 men in a raid on Vernon City. Now, at first, that doesn't seem uh, like too big of a deal. 20 men compared to the 450 uh, that Montgomery had led. Uh, The thing is, though, Vernon City is in Missouri. So Brown was now uh, causing the, the Kansas fighting to spill over out of the Kansas Territory and into the state of Missouri. The raid was intended to free slaves, and and it was successful on that mark, uh, with 11 slaves taken out of Missouri. Uh, However, Brown and and his men got carried away, and they also stole horses and cattle, uh, food and supplies, and two wagons, complete with their oxen teams. Some of the men, uh, though not Brown, also robbed at gunpoint some Missourians that, uh, that they encountered during the raid, and another uh, Missourian was shot and killed, and several more taken hostage. So as you probably guessed, the Vernon City Raid uh, caused a stir. Both the governor of Missouri and President Pierce put out bounties for Brown's capture, and the Missouri legislature was enraged by what they viewed as an act of war by Kansas against Missouri. Missouri militia mobilized, and not just the border ruffians either, militia throughout the state. And a resolution was introduced to declare war against Kansas. Now think about that for a second. Uh, But the Kansas legislature acted quickly to formally disavow Brown and his actions, averting a potential uh, conflagration. Even John Brown's friends and family were telling him he needed to cool it down. The war for bleeding Kansas was over, and there was no sense in starting it up again. But, you know, Brown wasn't having it. Quote, The war is not over. Is in a treacherous lull before the storm. We are on the eve of one of the greatest wars in history. I drew my sword in Kansas when they attacked us, and I will never sheath it until this war is over. End quote. With a couple of his fellow raiders, Brown packed up the stolen wagons uh, with the 11 freedmen and five hostages and headed northbound for Canada. He was a wanted man. Uh, but he didn't run into too much interference during the trip. The lawmen were not uh, too eager for what uh, John Brown left no doubt would be an armed confrontation. He released the hostages once they reached Nebraska, and then made a pit stop at the Quaker abolitionist town of Tabor, Iowa, where Brown and his men uh, had trained the prior year, and where he had hidden the weapons he, he had been stocking. The Tabor Quakers were not enthusiastic about the visit, from the now-notorious outlaw Osawatomie Brown. The town council passed a resolution signaling their, quote, sympathies for the oppressed, but also condemning Brown's actions and declaring that they had, quote, no sympathy with those who go to slave states to entice away slaves and take property or life when necessary to attain that end, end quote. Brown was disappointed, but he only responded by saying that his group would be leaving soon. One of uh, Brown's comrades, though, suggested to the Quaker council that if they felt so strongly about the matter, then the morally upright thing to do would be to place Brown and his men under arrest. The implication, of course, being that the, uh, the Iowans lacked the courage of their convictions. Now, many abolitionists in New England did not share the Quakers' 
reaction to the raid, which they learned of due to its wide reporting in the Eastern papers. Instead, they were impressed by Brown's bravery and success, and they were inspired to open their wallets in support of his efforts. Upon reaching Illinois, Brown caught a train to Chicago, where Alan Pinkerton arranged for passage for him and the now former slaves to Windsor, Ontario, by way of Detroit. After dropping off his charges in Canada, he stopped briefly in Cleveland, where he recruited John Copeland and Louis Leary, a free black man and an escaped slave, both of whom would uh, lose their lives in the Harpers Ferry raid. And then it was on to New England for fundraising. To, to capitalize on his recent press. In Concord, he had the opportunity to meet personally with transcendentalist luminaries Ralph Waldo Emerson, Henry David Thoreau, and Julia Ward Howe, the last of whom would later pen the Battle Hymn of the Republic. All three intellectuals were impressed with Brown's solemnness and his righteous bearing to how he was, quote, a Puritan of Puritans. Now, Brown biographer David Reynolds uh, reporting on the meeting in the biography that he wrote on Brown, uh, he has an amusing take on Howe's description. Reynolds writes, quote, Puritans, even the most revolutionary of them, were not usually gun-toting slave snatchers and horse thieves who hinted publicly that they had supervised killings. End quote. In June of 1859, several crates of mining equipment arrived in Chambersburg, Pennsylvania, a town that would be graced with an appearance by Jeb Stewart three years later. The contents of those crates, though, was mining equipment, in the same way that the crates Henry Ward Beecher sent to Kansas were filled with Bibles. In fact, the crates had nearly 200 rifles and 200 more revolvers, waiting for pickup by one Isaac Smith, a New York farmer who recently decided to relocate to Hagerstown, Maryland, which is within a few miles of Chambersburg, on the other side of the Mason-Dixon. Now, for anyone keeping track, Brown's list of aliases now includes Shubal Morgan, Nelson Hawkins, and this new one, Isaac Smith. Uh, I think the rule is that once you get to where you need more than two aliases, it might be time to start reconsidering uh, some of your life choices. So Brown, as Isaac Smith, rented a small farm a few miles south of Hagerstown, across the Potomac River, from Harper's Ferry. And just to explain the geography a little bit, Harper's Ferry uh, now is in the eastern panhandle of West Virginia, uh, which sticks out into Maryland and Virginia. So when you're in Harper's Ferry, you can look south across the Shenandoah River and see Virginia, or north across the Potomac River and see Maryland. And the two rivers uh, meet just east of the town, and that part of Maryland is, is only 25 uh, or 30 miles wide uh, before you get to Pennsylvania. The town was important due to how it's situated. Uh, in addition to uh, the rivers, it was a B&O railroad hub, and also because George Washington, in 1796, chose it as the location for a federal armory. The armory held somewhere around 20,000 small arms, and the town was also the location of Hall's Rifle Works, in 1859, the biggest small arms producer in the South. Uh, there were some slaves in Harper's Ferry and the surrounding areas, but uh, not nearly as many as you might find in the Deep South or in Eastern Virginia. That's one of the critiques of Brown's raid from a strategic viewpoint. Uh, he was relying on spontaneous recruitment of liberated slaves 
uh, from among the local population, but he chose an area where there weren't a lot of slaves. And the majority that were in the area were, were not men of fighting age. So Brown set up shop at the farm, which is usually referred to by historians as the Kennedy Farm, uh, because that was the name of the, the widow from whom John Brown rented it. And over the next few weeks, the team gradually uh, showed up from around the area. John Cook, though, was already there. He had been working as a teacher in Harper's Ferry for the last year uh, while, while gathering intelligence. So Brown's crew trickled into the Kennedy farm over the next six weeks or so. Once everyone had arrived, uh, he called a meeting and revealed the specifics of the plan. They would be attacking the U.S. arsenal at Harper's Ferry, property of the federal government, capture the arsenal stored there, and arm the slave insurrection that they would be triggering. So as you might expect, the men's initial reaction to that plan was disbelief. Uh, they were political radicals, fully committed to the cause and, and willing to get militant. But uh, they were not stupid men. Several were Ivy League educated, and, and they weren't insane. And insane is what they thought that Brown's plan was. But Brown worked on them, though. He reminded everyone of the righteousness of the cause and the evil of the institution that they were fighting. And eventually they all came around. But they weren't under any delusions as to the possible or the even likely consequences. One of the um, well-educated men, John Kagi, who had trained as a lawyer, though hadn't, hadn't really practiced, uh, Kagi concluded, quote, the result will be worth the sacrifice, end quote. Now, the next problem came in the form of a letter to Secretary of War John Floyd, who would later command troops in the Confederate Army. Floyd received a letter reporting that Osawatomie Brown, of Bleeding Kansas fame, was organizing an assault with the goal of instigating a slave revolt in Virginia. You remember those uh, Iowa Quakers we mentioned earlier? Uh, they denounced Brown's lawless Missouri raid, and, and one of Brown's men suggested that they place Brown and his crew under arrest. Well, they, of course, were not interested in a potentially violent confrontation. Instead, they decided to blow the whistle on Brown's plans, having learned of the uh, general idea from a, a loose-lipped recruit. Now, had Floyd thought that there was any legitimate chance of an attack by militant abolitionists, he would have nipped it in the bud immediately. But he, he viewed the idea as outlandish. Everyone knew that abolitionists were not violent, and the troubles in Kansas had subsided. So when the letter referenced a raid on an arsenal in Maryland, Floyd concluded that it was a prank or a hoax because, uh, being the Secretary of War, he knew that there was no arsenal in Maryland. Now, how the Quaker realized that the target uh, arsenal was just on the other side of the Potomac in Virginia, Floyd may have taken the matter seriously, but instead he was quick to disregard it. In August, Brown rode to Chambersburg, Pennsylvania, for another meeting with Frederick Douglass. Now, once again, Brown tried to coax Douglass into joining the effort, saying, quote, When I strike, the bees will begin to swarm, and I shall want you to help hive them, end quote. But Douglass again declined, telling Brown, frankly, that the plan had no chance of success and that its violent nature was likely to turn the public against abolitionists. It was bad optics, as people might say now. 
However, an escaped slave traveling with Douglas by the name of Shields Green, well, he had less to lose. And he opted to join the team, saying to Douglas, quote, I believe I'll go with the old man. And after a final recruit, Francis Merriam, uh, who was an abolitionist from a, a prominent Boston family, uh, after he joined in October, the team now stood at 21 men, which would be the final count. Brown's initial designs had called for a 50-man vanguard, but he, he wasn't willing to delay the mission any further to recruit more men. So on October 15th, John Brown announced to his 20 followers that the time had come. The following evening, October 16th, they would raid Harper's Ferry, effectively attacking the government of the United States itself. I hate to leave off with a cliffhanger, but I'm going to do it. The original plan was to finish off the portrait of John Brown uh, with just one more episode, so two total. But it was pushing two hours, and I didn't want to get too long with it. As I mentioned in the opening, the rest of the John Brown series is just about finished, so we'll have the end of the story out soon. In the meantime, if you have any questions or comments about the show, you can reach me at blueandgraypodcast at gmail.com. If you haven't already, please rate or review the show on iTunes, uh, or whichever app you use to listen to it. Now, I know fewer people are using iTunes uh, to download podcasts these days, and there's a lot of good ones out there. Look in your feed for part three, or part 2B, however you want to look at it, uh, the concluding show of our look at John Brown within the next week or two. Until then, thanks as always for listening, and I hope you enjoyed the show. 